Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, we're back here. Fitness is accumulating. We're feeling good. Yes, I actually had yesterday, uh, I'm not just saying this, I feel like coaches say this, but like yesterday I got a lot of notifications about new thresholds and new personal bests and stuff. I don't know why Saturday (laughs) in April was the big day, but I guess I had put a lot of tests on that day for people and Away they went. All right. But we should probably note that that was days that they were supposed to have personal bests, given that we just posted an article this week about how it's not a breakthrough if it happens every day. Yeah. No, that's the idea. Yeah. It's like you can't you can't do it every day. Right. But this is in the article, we talk about this idea that if you're testing yourself every day, which a lot of us do. Right. We're always judging. And, And so the idea, I think the central thesis of that article was that a lot of days we just are going through the motions, right? And then some days we get, you know, a PB if we're lucky or a yearly PB. Training Peaks likes their PBs for the year. So those are good too. Well, and I think it was also just about like not getting caught up in what apps tell you. I mean, between Strava, Training Peaks, oh, yeah. a bunch of these Just other, every day you're a hero. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I mean. <laughs> like every single app is going to tell it like, if you have, say, like 10 apps that you're basically working you just through. Just pick the one you like. Which, I mean, a lot of us have. Like, most sure. of us have that kind of input going through. Like, one of them is going to say you did something, like, yeah, PB-ish. So, and I think the hard, you know, I, I've been fortunate here to work with a couple younger athletes here as we've been working through this pandemic and, you know, the youth programs not being. So I have a couple younger than I'm used to. And they ask really good questions. And you have to think about how you're explaining things. And especially this idea of like, it takes some time. There's a process, right? You'll get there. Think about your own personal growth. Um, you know, a lot of those concepts. And it applies to all of us, right? I think maybe just the younger athletes are, it's more present to them or they're, they're, they just ask bolder questions maybe i'm not sure right but that's the idea is that like it might take a while to do it but it's worth it to go through that you know the, the cliched journey yeah and i mean personal growth doesn't have to really equate with personal bests or with breakthroughs i think i think mm-hmm. personal growth almost it like doesn't actually align with those and a link maybe maybe we should have linked this in the article maybe i'll have to go back and put it in the article but we'll put it in the show notes too but i, I just redid a video for testing because i do like the idea of testing um, but I like it more as a like eight out of 10, nine out of 10 effort. It doesn't have to be a PB, but we're showing up and practicing showing up, right? And this is racing. This is group rides. This is just performance on demand, you might call it. And so I talk about in that article that we're actually just trying to accumulate these attempts, if you will. That's the title of Dan John's recent book as well. Um, I think that was the title of his book. Attempts, yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Um, but this idea that we're just, we're showing up and, and we're just getting close to the, you know, that peak effort but it's if we don't have this cluster of efforts around there that one is just this outlier right we're trying to make it so it's not just this one spike up and then never again Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's really what i'm looking at with testing uh is just frequent not every day but frequent we're you know playing we're we're just trying that you know race-like effort Mm -hmm. love it yeah so that was a recent post anyhow that's uh that one wasn't a while in the works yeah, 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 but it's up there. Yep. You can read it. We'll, we'll put a it. <laughs> we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, anyway, let's let's get on to today's guest. I was so excited to interview Catherine Bertine. So I'm I'm like not even sure where to start. Well, with her she's bio. a consummate athlete, number one, which people might not know depending on how much they know about her. Yeah, I was super excited to chat with her. So you might know Catherine Bertine as the director between uh, behind the documentary Half the Road. You might know her from her new book Stand. You might know the her home stretch, maybe the you know it's a house in Tucson, so you might have seen them out on group rides or known someone who went there or you might have been someone who went there yeah or you might know her from the la course race at la tour de france uh she is one of the primary driving forces behind getting that that women's race at the tour she was on the start line in 2014 she you know is a professional cyclist but she was also a professional figure skater she then switched to rowing and triathlon uh, before finding her her footing in cycling 
So it's a really fun conversation because we do get to talk about, you know, all about this consummate athlete background, but also, you know, what it looks like balancing life as an activist and an athlete. And I mean, she's written four books. She's directed this movie. She's yeah, started this foundation that has now seen riders from 17 different countries. And I think it's, it's a couple hundred riders. She mentions how many uh, have stayed at the home stretch since she, since she opened it in 2017. She strikes me as, because uh, you also mentioned she rode at ESPN as well. She yes, she was at a writer for ESPN. So she strikes me very much as this, you know, if we re- remember back to Range with David Epstein, right? And that book of, of sort of just like accumulating experience. Yeah. Uh, right. And then you end up in this place. Right. And you said, you know, sometimes it's hard to see how, you know, again, a young person or a person who's looking for what they'll do next. How do you get there? Right. And it's this very much this idea of accumulating just different experiences that somehow at the end, you know, connect the dots connect. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, an excellent like how do you get the job uh, interview because I mean, you realize like there's not really like a simple straight line to a very fulfilling life. Um, and I actually will get into it in depth, but really listen for the part where we talk about the the me versus us mentality. I right. think it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. You've been talking about that since your interview. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it was really cool to to get to chat with Catherine. I've been writing about all of her different things. I think pretty much since like 2013, 2014, when you know the course was was coming to fruition. So it's cool to to bring this around and have her on the podcast. And I I will I say it to her in the beginning, but. Definitely check out the book Stand. It's really well written. It's a you know both a, a memoir and a guidebook uh, to activism, and I think it's it's just a really really good read. Uh, sort of no matter no matter what you're you're into. So without further ado, enjoy this chat with Catherine Bertine. Catherine Bertine, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you for having me, Molly. I'm excited to be here on your terrific show. Thank you. Um, Okay, we have to just, I mean, start with a huge congratulations on your latest book, Stand. It's, like, honestly, it's such a well-written, just enjoyable-to-read book, in addition to being, like, a very important book, I think. So I'm so excited to be able to tell everyone they have to read it, because it's, it's actually, like, a fun read. It's not just, like, a book you should read, you know? Thank you. I mean, as as a writer, that's a huge, huge compliment. Um, and you know, as an author yourself, you know, it you want to put a book out there that people actually enjoy reading. And um, people will occasionally say like, oh, I can hear you in this book. And because it's, you know, a quote unquote, easy read, because it flows, um, people probably also think, oh, you must have just sat down and like written that in one draft. And I'm like, no, that took about three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it is such a fun thing to hear, though, that people hear your voice reading it out. I feel yes. like a lot of books, especially nonfiction, the tendency is to go into this kind of dry, like academic style. So to be able to have it sound like you is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I knew we needed facts in there, right? We had to teach people about the background of what we were up against. Mm -hmm. But I felt that way too. I'm like, look, when I'm reading facts, um, there is a way that we can make this fun. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. sound like you're reading a textbook. So that was my goal. (laughs) Thank you. Well, before we get too deep into the book here, we have to talk about your, what I'm calling your consummate athlete background. Uh, Explain to everyone how you went from being a figure skater to a professional cyclist. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem disjointed until you break it down physiologically. um, And it actually transcribes very well to go from skating and then I went to rowing and then triathlon and then cycling and the one thing all those sports share in common is a very similar use of the quadricep in an endurance factor you know even though for figure skating our long program is only one sorry four minutes um, it's still this very interesting plyometric cardio blend and uh, something about the physiology actually lends itself well. And if we trace the sport of cycling back, we see that we've got gotten some pretty incredible cyclists like Connie Carpenter-Finney. She came from rowing and speed skating, right? Um, mm. Same thing with many athletes that come from those sports. So I thought that was interesting. But for me, how I got into it was that as a kid, I only lived five minutes away from a skating rink. 
So for me, it was a very natural uh, place to go and thing to do. And I fell in love with figure skating when I started taking lessons at about age 11. And so that stuck and I loved it. Um, When I got to college, I also discovered rowing and my father was a rower. So he said, oh, you got to try this. And at the time, the sport was club level. It later went varsity, but I was able to kind of walk in and try rowing. And uh, then when I came out to Arizona for grad school, there was neither ice nor water in Tucson. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And it was a rowing friend of mine that said, oh, you should get a bike. You know, and my first thought was like, oh, I always loved riding bikes as a kid. Yeah, cycling or biking is fun, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. so I did. And being a grad student, there was, um, at the time, I don't think there was a cycling team, but there maybe there was, but there was a triathlon club team. And as a grad student, you're allowed to walk into club programs, yep. you know? So I did, and I fell in love with triathlon, but it was um, of the three sports, swim, bike, run. I happened to be strongest at the bike. And again, that came from the skating and the rowing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I stayed in triathlon. I was able to excel to the professional level. And um, I raced pro for three years. And when it turned out that cycling was my strongest of the three, I transitioned over to road cycling late. <laughs> and this is all also like while you're working... You were like working at ESPN sort of alongside of this? Yeah, that was my professional side of the um, the career ladder. You know, before I ever thought that sports could be a professional anything, um, I was training as a journalist, as a writer. You know, my goal was to um, write books and be a journalist. So uh, check. that's check, right? <laughs> check. So at first I was, I was freelancing for ESPN, lucky to get a few assignments with them right out of grad school. Um, and then I was lucky to get a book deal about my, um, life in the figure skating world. Right. So, uh, that kind of opened some doors and I got into ESPN, but it wasn't until 2006 when they came to me with this, um, an idea for an assignment. And they said, look, we want to know what it would take for an athlete who is good, but yet not great or gifted and we want to see what it would take for them to get to the olympic games what an and I was awkward like, conversation oh it was so awkward <laughs> it was so awkward especially when at first i thought they were talking about like oh great who do you want me to interview and then they were like oh no we want you to be the guinea pig you know and uh, at that point i was a pro triathlete but i was um Uh, I was not winning all these major races. I was a firm middle of the pack pro cyclist, you know, do well on the local levels, but mid pack on the big levels. And I think that's what they wanted. They were like, okay, well, you've got a good track record, but you're not like a born gifted, natural going straight for to the gold, you know, Mm -hmm. so what does it take to get there and qualify for the game? So that's what opened the door. That assignment But the big interesting kind of detour was that even though I got into cycling late during that assignment, when the the assignment did end, I was so in love with the sport of cycling um, that I'm like, well, I'm not done. You know, maybe I don't have an ESPN contract anymore to, you know, shoot for the Olympics, but I actually came close enough in points qualification. um, I was like, maybe there's something here. I love this sport and I want to see if I can get to the pro ranks like those amazing women that I had access to racing with in some of the UCI races. Mm-hmm. So that that's where the, the quest turned a new corner. Okay. I love it. Um, and I also kind of want to just quickly touch on, you were in a lot of sports that have a lot of inherent like body image stuff wrapped mm-hmm. up in that. Mm-hmm. And you were in all of these for a very long time. How are you still a healthy human? (laughs) Ah, well, probably because I did go through an eating disorder um, in the professional ranks of skating and recognize that that's something I needed to get help and get out of. Right. So that it actually, it never was an issue during my amateur years um, where I was treated and felt very much like an athlete. But when Mm. I turned to the show skating world, it was this bizarre kind of like Hollywood influence and everyone had to look like this and not weigh that. And that was just this eye-opening um, reality to me. And at first I conformed to it. And then I was like, uh, no, screw this. This is not okay. 
But in our early 20s, you know, we're not as adult as we think we are. And I mean, I certainly wasn't, (laughs) you know, just because you're 23 and yes, you're out of college and you're striking out on your own and the world is big and exciting. It doesn't mean that you know shit, you know? Mm -hmm, (laughs) So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I I really struggled with that for a while because uh, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure my way out and I got help and um, was able to, you know, to heal from an anorexia journey. Um, luckily before it became some multi-year endeavor. And Mm -hmm. part of the healing in that process was, you know, I really want to get back to being an athlete and one that is strong and that eats normally. And, you know, back to my days as a kid athlete, I want to, I want to be in that realm again, you know? And, um, so I kind of made this deal with myself that I already loved endurance sports and I would love to get into cycling and triathlon, et cetera. But um, I certainly recognize that if I don't fuel myself properly, I'm not going to get anywhere. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I can almost see like a parallel in that, like sort of seeing that the system and like what you're being told is like the right way to go mm-hmm. is like very similar to your then career as like an activist in cycling. Cause it's, it's looking at yet another thing and saying like, no, wait, this doesn't make any sense. What? Yes. This isn't the right way to go. Yes. I'm fix this. <laughs> True. I think it's an interesting parallel. Absolutely. And I think too, um, you know, there's this, it's something we should talk about, which is kind of unspoken, but for people who are in the throes of an eating disorder, whether it's bulimia or anorexia or any one of the other branches on that tree, um, it takes a ridiculous amount of discipline and focus and, um, determination, none of it healthy, but all of those things line up. And I truly believe if we can circumnavigate the system so that we're not putting that type of energy and emphasis on starving ourselves, you know, imagine what we could do if we took that power and put it somewhere good and benevolent. And, you know, I, so I think, and I try to share this message that, you know, um, maybe, and I certainly know too, that with eating disorders, there is a bit of, uh, of a control element. It is, it's a control freak mm-hmm. situation, you know, and, um, we can truly heal from that, but what do we do with that sense of urgency and control and focus and determination? Let's put that somewhere, uh, to work for something good instead of something bad. So, oh, I love it. I, lo- I feel like that could just be the episode and it would already be okay. like solid gold. So <laughs> amazing. Um, and with that, let's let's kind of shift into the activism side of things. If we have to, I mean, La Course is sort of, it's not where it all began, but I feel like when we're talking about like the high, the moment, it's 2014, Tour de France, you're there, you made that happen. Um, what did it feel like to be that part of history. Like I get, I got goosebumps asking you that question just now. Oh, oh, I get goosebumps that you're even asking that question. So thank you, Molly. Um, so I think that in the, in the throes of it, while it was happening, um, it's hard to, to pause and think, wow, history is being made and I'm part of it. You know, I oh. definitely, yeah, check the box. Yeah. It, it didn't feel that way when I was in the, the middle of it, you know, that, that came later. Um, mm-hmm. but I definitely knew that, uh, okay, something big is happening and, um, it was terrifying and awesome and, uh, wonderful and stressful. It pretty much checked off all possible boxes of emotion. <laughs> Um, some of it healthy, other, other parts of it, not so healthy because, um, you know, it had been a very long struggle. It was amazing that that was July 29th, 2014, when La Course by Tour de France first debuted. But as you know, um, behind the scenes, we had been fighting for that for, um, well, a year publicly and visibly, but far longer than that beforehand. Yeah. Right. You, you had know? that great line in the book where you, uh, it was, I think 2009, you said, uh, hitting send was the moment my life and activism began is like this quote that I just wrote down because I love that so much. And it was you emailing, uh, Christian Prudhomme, uh, of the tour, like with that, like opening, we should have a women's thing. Like what's yes. it going to take? Yeah. Yeah. Back in 2009. Um, you know, after all, kind of the fires had been ignited when I saw what was really happening in women's pro cycling and how 
it was so unequal to all the sports I'd ever played growing up. And so, you know, in my naivete, I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to put together a business proposal and email Christian Prudhomme and he will certainly listen to me because I know what I'm talking about, you know? Yeah. Well, no matter how good my intentions were uh, in his eyes, um, of course I was, you know, nobody he'd ever heard of. And I certainly wasn't a pro cyclist. Um, at that point, you know, I wasn't on staff with ESPN. I was, that would happen again a few years later, but there are all these things that, that, you know, I just heard crickets from that, but something in me knew, you know, the minute that I started, um, gaining not just the confidence and, you know, it wasn't also just an email, but it was like, like, uh, I want to sit down and share this business proposal with you that I've written, you know? So it was kind of like, I, I was involved with this and I knew that hitting send, um, you know, would be something fascinating. It could open this new journey. And of course, at first it opened absolutely nothing because <laughs> I had you know, no response from, from ASO and Christian Prudhomme. Um, that was 2009 and we did not get a response until 2013. You know, that's four years. And what happened in that interim was, gosh, everything. It was um, making the film Half the Road on women's pro cycling. And during that time of interviewing, all the amazing women in the sport, you know, Mariana Voss and Emma Pooley were at the top of their game. Um, Chrissy Wellington, four-time Ironman national, not national, excuse me, world champion. She was part of our, um, of our group, Le Tour Entier. So what happened was that now I was no longer reaching out alone, but I was reaching out with a group of um, fellow activists that banded together to, reach a, a better, higher platform. And sure enough, that's what happened. You know, mm -hmm. once um, ASO saw that we had some gold, Olympic gold medalists and world champions involved that had very big followings and fans, now they paid attention. But, right. but this is the fun part that I always tell people is that, and then there's me, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't have a gold medal and I don't have a world championship title. And I don't have gazillions of, of followers that they did, but, but I had organizational skill. I had an ability to write clearly. I had more determination and, um, you know, pestering persistence than anyone really cared to deal with. But, but if we could align that together, you know, I was able to um, be an equal member of this team proving the point that we don't have to be famous or wealthy or world champions. And, but when we can bring our strengths into the arena and we band together with others, then really that's the, uh, the ingredients for mm -hmm. ingredients for making change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like Aquaman in the justice league. Like you don't often <laughs> think of him as like the, the most important one, but like, honestly, he's probably going to be the one to save the day. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Thank you. Yes. And something about Aquaman slash Aqua woman. I mean, hydration is very key in this. So, very you know, I like that, um, that subtle underlying theme. So, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, so on the start line of the course, as I was asking you that question, it also kind of a to me like you're on the start line both as an activist but also like holy crap as an athlete oh yeah how do you balance those emotions like how do you like turn <sighs> on that one brain turn off the other like get into go mode like, mm. how do you balance being an athlete and an activist in that very moment and I'll never forget this you know we're lining up and we're getting ready to clip in at the start line like you would any race like your first cat four race or standing on the start line of the Champs-Élysées, either way, it's the same start in a technical fashion. You clip in and you go. So I can remember people asking, what did it feel like on the start line? I'm like, well, all you're hoping is that the woman ahead of you clips in solidly and you don't have to, you know, get log jammed or backed up and all these tiny little technical details that had nothing to do with history or, yeah. <laughs> you know, women's <laughs> equality. That's just like, oh no, I just wanted to clip in and go and, you know, make sure I had Please. some gel in my pocket. That's all I Please care about. Please don't make about. me miss a pedal. Yeah. <laughs> don't make me miss a pedal and don't make the person ahead of me miss their pedal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was very much, um, full on athlete focus in that moment. Yeah. But the, um, the, I think the biggest part for me, and I, I don't want this to be too much of a spoiler alert, but, um, you know, in, 
it was halfway through the race. I, I got a flat tire. And I know, I know. Is it okay that I talk about that? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, all of us who are in the cycling, whether you race or whether you ride, we, you know, we've all had flat tires. And if you haven't, you will. So, you know, for to get a flat in that race, um, at first I was, I was devastated. What was interesting is that our team car was something like, 14 out of 16, or maybe it was 16 out of 18 teams, you know, it was something really, um, way back in the caravan. And Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh shit, by the time I get my tire changed, I'm going to have to, you know, fight for my life to get back to the Peloton. And it was game on gas go everything, you know, it was not slow. (laughs) So I was watching this situation play out. And um, even my team car tried to pace me, motor pace me back when they legally could do that a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, sure enough, uh, even with the motor pacing, which I was good at, um, it wasn't enough to get me back to the Peloton. So uh, here's where the beautiful part comes in is that as I'm kind of um, realizing that I'm going to get pulled from the race because of this technical issue, um, I got to look around at the crowd they came to La Course by Tour de France and boy, did it hit me. Like fans were lining this race, not just one level deep, but you know, four people deep and the cheering, which you can't always hear when you're racing because of the, the wind in your ears and the gears and the breath and all of that. But to, to be in that moment, to ride slowly for about um, a quarter mile till I was at the, you know, the pit, um, to hear the crowd cheering and what was wild. They didn't, they didn't know, maybe some did, but I doubt it. No one knew who I personally was, Right. but they were cheering for me. Like I was winning the race. Like I was off the front, you know, and they knew I wasn't, these were educated fans. Um, but they, their enthusiasm was just mind blowing. They were so happy to be there. They were so happy to be at this women's race. Um, and to me, that was, the greatest flat tire of my life because it provided that perspective, you know, that I would not have had otherwise. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was, oh, it was I a victory. Love <laughs> I love it. Um, and I mean, actually maybe you could just break down that was 2014. Give me like the 30 second, like what has happened since that race to now in your life, oh. which I know is a lot of things. Did you say 30 <laughs> seconds or 30 minutes? I'm sorry. Which one oh. was it? No. <laughs> no. Um, the, so immediately following the race, which again was an awesome experience, was um, a very unfortunate letdown too for me because my public um, activism self had achieved some pretty great things with my team and we had made mm-hmm. history. And, um, and history is still being made and that's amazing. But behind the scenes, my personal life was completely in tatters. Um, my husband had left very unexpectedly and it's something I didn't see coming. And all of a sudden there it was. And I had to wear this brave activism face for the public. Like I looked like I had my shit together. And in some ways I did with the activism, but with the personal side, I was completely broken and destroyed. And, um, in, you know, leading up to that, I could focus on the race. And then as soon as the race was over, um, was when everything really started to fall apart because it was the reality of, you know, um, not just the devastation of divorce itself, but the actual logistics, like, um, because of the bizarre situation I was then left, you know, homeless, carless, I could barely make it on my cycling salary. Um, So now I'm, you know, going to have to find multiple jobs just to keep going. So all of these things really started to weigh in, um, in a very, very depressive element. Um, and it took me down into a very deep depression and that's not something that, um, you know, even seven, eight years ago, where are we now? So that's about, yeah, almost are we coming up on that's seven years ago, you know, Even then, I don't think mental health was being advocated for the way that it is today. Definitely not. You know, exactly. And you look, we're educated women and we think, you know, okay, yeah, no, we know depression is this or that. And even seven years ago, my idea was that depression was um, something you were born with. It was clinical and you had to take the meds that we saw on TV commercials. And that that's depression. I don't have that. 
mm-hmm. you know, and like, that's, you know, I'm just really, really sad. And I probably want to die, you know, and I didn't think to myself that that was depression. Um, because I didn't understand that there were different branches on the tree of, mm-hmm. of depression. And um, finally, it took me down such a dark hole that I felt like, I, you know, I'm either going to check out or I need to get help. And um, there's a longer, that's, that. see, I'm already over 30 seconds. <laughs> that, w- that would be the 30 minute version, but I'll just summarize by saying that that's in the book, you know, that particular mm-hmm. part. Um, but I was finally able to get some bearing by asking for help, you know? And so if, yeah. if there's any takeaway that anyone takes from this, it's that, you know, um, that's, that's where we start. We've got to find a way where we, where we can ask for help. And that could be friends. It could be family members. Um, psychologytoday.com mm-hmm. you can go to, and you can actually, they have a find a therapist link and, you can plug in your zip code and see who takes your insurance and see who um, is in your, it's almost like an online dating, but for you, for your brain, <laughs> for your mental health, you know, you can shop around and say, oh, I kind of connect maybe with this person's philosophy. So I just like talking about that because in case anyone's going through this, like know that there are some, some options out there. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I love that. And actually, it's funny, just before, uh, as I was like looking through again last night, and what I highlighted and stuff, I actually wrote down um, the one line you have in, in the book is, uh, we need to stop thinking that happy people don't carry the weight of despair, we need to check in on our strongest friends. And I think that is like, the perfect, like, exa- like, exactly what you were just saying. I think a, a lot of us kind of take that, like, you have this forward facing, like, you just did this huge thing, you made the course happen, like, of course, you're doing great. What? Why wouldn't you be? Um, Yes. There's a whole lot going on. There is. And I know I'm more aware now when I see people who are kind of uh, standing on the front lines of change in whatever capacity they're trying to create change. And I'm a lot more in tune with, wow, this person is um, wonderfully relentless in many ways, but I have a feeling they're also pretty tired. Mm-hmm. And maybe they need they need a hug, they need a call, they need a break, you know, check in and be like, how are you doing? And mm-hmm. let people know too um, that it's okay to rest, you know, during activism. It's okay to, um, and you probably, it's healthy, you should, you know, take breaks and um, put it on the back burner so that you can get, regain your strength and, you know, get back out there. So yeah. That's, uh, yeah. So a lot of people, oh man, I remember when people, and this, it, of course it starts with close friends. They, I let them into what's going on and, um, the amount of initial comments that would come back was like, oh, you're strong. You're strong. You've got this, you know? And I'm like, I'm not that strong. You know, (laughs) I don't have this. Stop telling me I have it. It's like, yes, I can make a tour to France, but I can't even make dinner tonight because, you know, it's too hard because <laughs> that's, it really truly is. And anybody who's, who's been through that realm of depression, they know, you know, like mm-hmm. you can be confident and capable in one area and completely um, destroyed and devastated in another. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. fit those two people in one brain. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you, you came sort of, we'll, say, we'll not say out of, but we'll say through that really dark time. And the next thing you do is you start the Homestretch Foundation. Mm. So you just go right into like, who else can I help? What else can I do? What's the <laughs> next step here? Um, I have to say the Homestretch Foundation really stemmed from um, taking, you know, going through the, first of all, my divorce lasted for over a year, and it was not pleasant. It was a very unfortunate one um, in a various, in so many ways. But during that year, I remember thinking, like, um, I can either fall deeper into this place of despair. And even though I was getting help, but it was like, oh my God, this is relentless. It's like being in a boxing ring and just getting punch after punch to your, uh, you know, sense of self, to your fragility, you know, all of it. So I was like, I, well, all of this uh, shitstorm is happening. I have two choices. Either um, I find something positive to latch onto and try to lift me out, or um, I stay upset and depressed and negative and, you know, and I knew that one of those was much healthier than the other. So, 
Um, <laughs> yeah. And so where home stretch, where the focus really happened was the fact that um, now we're in 2015 and I, I'm still racing. I'm on a world tour pro team, but I'm barely making anything. And when the divorce happened, um, I remember thinking to myself, if I had been on the exact same team, but as a man, I would have had um, a base salary, a minimum of about 35,000 euro. Now, well, that's not huge. That is enough that you can live on. Um, especially if you live in Tucson or smaller towns and you live very modestly, it's enough to get you started enough to get you by. Um, and because I, I didn't have that, I had, you know, it was, what was it that year? Like maybe under $6,000, you know, Um, which obviously meant, okay, I'm going to need another job. I'm going to have to do this and that. But what made me so sad was thinking like, I'm going to have to quit pro cycling. Um, yet if I were a man, I wouldn't have to at this Mm -hmm. level. So I thought we need to change this gender pay gap issue. And wouldn't it be great if while we're working to change that, there could be a place where female pro cyclists who are at that world tour level um, or pro continental level could come and train and live for free um, to help with that, you know? And so in my head, that sounded like a great idea. And obviously had that been around when I was struggling, then um, it would have made things a heck of a lot easier. Um, so I remember thinking, let me get the business plan together for this idea. And maybe someday, many years from now, I can um, pitch it to a potential investor or sponsor. And Can we just talk about the fact that you're not like, <laughs> I'm grumpy that this didn't exist for me. Like, and instead you're like on to like, let me, even though my situation still sucks, let me do this so that other female cyclists have an easier time of it as they go through. Like that is not a common way that people think it's an amazing way, but it's not. (laughs) Thanks for that. You know, I think for me, um, whether I'm hardwired this way or not, I think thinking that way there, I, whether I was able to articulate it at that point in 2015, um, it felt good to help others. You know, if anybody's ever volunteered or just helped at, you know, an event, you know, or anything, you know that it feels good, right? So for me, I was thinking like, well, I certainly know I'm not the other, the only um, woman out there in pro cycling who's struggling with this issue. Mm-hmm. No, you know, there are other, I don't mean the divorce side. I mean like the gender pay gap side. I know. But also that. But also that, <laughs> you know, um, like there are other women who are struggling with this and um, wouldn't it be awesome if I can help us, you know, not me, but us. And that's when it rang true. Like that's where the magic happens. And, you know, the same thing was true for La Course. Yeah. Um, I sure, certainly wanted to race it as a, as a pro athlete, but I wanted women to have a presence there. And mm-hmm. that was the us factor, you know? Um, and for me, that, that was the big driving point. So I think that getting home stretch, even if it wasn't necessarily maybe the most natural thought for me, it was the thing that said, um, I think other people will stand with me if I can get this off the ground. And, um, that gives me something positive to shoot for. And it takes away that, um, selfish aspect too. of like, Oh, I need this for me. Nope. I know there are others. We need it for us. So I love that. Uh, I love that. And I think there's so many things that people could take that instead of me think about us, like stance on. It's such a good like yeah. way to sort of like funnel things through or funnel ideas through. I agree. I agree. And you know how that saying is necessity is the mother of invention. And that is why Homestretch was created. We needed to fix that, that pay gap. Um, so I put that out there for anyone else. If they're like, gosh, this should really be that way, you know, then think, is it just you that's having that thought? Or do you think others probably want it that way too? Mm -hmm. Well, if that's true, then, you know, um, band together and start thinking about how you can make that change happen. It's not just for you, it's for many of you. And that's, that's where the magic's going to happen. Yeah. And I also like, if you think about it, like, I mean, the course is this huge global scale, like, biggest thing in the cycling world thing you could do and homestretch while it is big it is still this it's you know a a little grouping of houses in tucson yeah yeah (laughs) exactly it's local yet global in that Mm -hmm. really interesting capacity we this is our fifth year we've had 70 athletes from 17 different countries come through the program 
That's so cool. Right. And it. all in our little Tucson, you know, and I, and I think I get a lot of support from our Tucson cycling community because I always refer to it as our home stretch. You know, this, this is here and mm-hmm. yet we have athletes from all over the world. So it's ours together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Which all leads me to like, what does, I mean, what does a day in your life look like? And also how do you, how do you recharge on a daily basis? Mm. Because I feel like you know, running the home stretch, writing the book, doing the rides, you're like always riding like with people and doing things in the community and all of this stuff. You either are the world's biggest extrovert or like <laughs> you figured out some kind of secret sauce to like keep your introvert <laughs> self like going. That's so great. Um, well, I'm going to answer this from the standpoint of pretending that our pandemic and COVID year did not exist because things yeah. were weird this year, you know, but we still went forth with home stretch just to reduce capacity to make sure people weren't breathing on each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But so I'm going to answer your question in the biggest sense. And for me, my day in the life, um, I have very much learned to prioritize um, mental health. And that includes the self-care of, of carving time out for yourself every day. It's very, it's our American culture to be like, Oh, I worked 50 hours today. And like, that makes me the best. And I'm awesome. How, how many hours did you work today? Right. So we'd have to kind of like knock that idea out of people's heads and be like, no, actually you're going to be a lot more productive as a human being and an employee. If you work fewer hours and take an hour for yourself so that the rest of your hours are quality rather than mm-hmm. crap, you know? And so I've been able to see that. And I think many people have actually seen that during the pandemic too with, yeah. So, um, so for me, I make sure that every day I get minimum an hour to myself. I'll also say too, because, you know, every night I sit down, I watch the local news and the world news. That's an hour, you know, where I'm not doing any, I'm watching, I'm learning, but that's my hour. And then I also take at least one hour for um, fitness you know, whether it's a ride or a hike or a run. And honestly, that's often more than one hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it leaves me in this place where I'm really recharged for the stuff that I have to do, which right now, two roles. One is um, home stretch, running a foundation. Of course, I, I wear all, the majority of the hats in this. So it's everything from fundraising to um, uh, checking in with the athletes, um, you know, reading letters or um, applications of who wants to come in next year, you know, so things keep me busy that way. But the big thing right now is um, pushing stand out into the world um, and getting that, you know, for the, for the first, anyway, the first uh, six months of a new book is kind of that, um, that time where you have to be very active and uh, doing things like we're doing now, Molly, you know, talking yes. to people about it and uh, letting them know it's out there. So stand right now feels like, um, feels like my baby. And I honestly, about six hours a day going into, you know, pushing that out into the world. So <laughs> I don't busy. think people, people listening to this have no idea how exhausting that is. But like, I mean, that's the part that I fall down on the most as an author, because it is like, I would rather write a hundred books than have to promote a single one because it is so much harder to do. So true. It is so true. It is so true because you and I, we both get a lot of support from people in the cycling community that might follow our journeys. And that's great. I'm so very thankful for them. But when we want to get the book out to a larger audience, um, that's hard. So hard. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard, especially in this modern day and age where um, the book industry, you know, really has a very interesting pattern of how they promote what they're publishing. Um, And they, you know, celebrity books always seem to come first, you know, so it's, it's a lot different than it was um, 17 years ago when my first book came out and social media didn't exist. Email did. That was great. But, you know, (laughs) we didn't have social media. And I I cannot tell you how much things have changed. So now Stand is, um, yeah, right now it's a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay, let's let's go into two Mm. questions about Stand. I'll I'll start with the first one. It's just like, why why right now? Like, what made this year the year to do it? Uh, I love that you say that. And it's funny because... um, it's, it wasn't like, oh, what a great year for women, equality, sports. Now's a good time to publish. It's actually the fact that um, Stan took three years before 
to write. And the timing of it um, is very much in my favor right now for having it come out. Um, I think it would have struggled, you know, in 2017 um, as opposed to 2020. But uh, yeah, so the reason that it took this long is because um, when when one when an author has a traditional book deal, um, you're given an advance to sit down and write your book, mm-hmm. and therefore you can incorporate it into your schedule as as a job, you know, and you prioritize it that way. Um, and this time around, this, so Stan's my fourth book, and the first three books were all published by traditional companies, you know, like um, ESPN, Little Brown, Random House. These are the big dogs of corporate publishing. Mm-hmm. And this time around, when my agent took the proposal of what Stand is about, you know, when, when they took the proposal to these uh, publishing houses, not just these three of my past books, but about 20 different publishers, they all say that, said the exact same thing. They said, again, this is back 2017-ish, they all said, a book about women who stand up and fight for change, it's not going to sell. Meh. <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to sell. Um, don't bother. And, you know, the, the the shelf's too crowded. The memoir shelf? No, it's too crowded. Like, these were actual direct quotes. And what floored me was, like, I get it if one publisher might not be interested, but to have all of them say this and to sometimes say, like, oh, Bertinzo, she's a good writer, but, yeah, this topic will never sell. I'm like, uh-oh, something's off. And what they're doing now is they're basing book deals on comps, you know, um, are there other books out there about women who fight for change? Well, if there are and they're doing well, then maybe we'll give this person a book deal. But it's a very undernourished area. Um, there are no books on that shelf. Maybe unless there's a famous, you know, celebrity or famous biography. But um, there really haven't been too many books. So instead of saying back in the day, um, they would have publishers would have been like, oh, this is unique and original. Let's publish it. Right. And now it's the opposite. Now it's like, nope, uh, I can't see anything like this, and it won't sell. So that got me to the point. And honestly, that was also quite a blow to my confidence. That you know, I'm like, wait, my yeah. first three books are okay, but this one's not, you know, or not valuable. So it really floored me to the point where then I was like, okay, I have two choices. One is that I don't write this book. And that's that. Is that ever really a choice? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it stoked the fires for me. It was like, how dare you say that women fighting for change doesn't matter or won't sell? How dare you say that? And again, to remind people that Stand is not all about me. It's about the fact that we made change happen because we banded together. And as you know, Molly, like Emma and Marianne and Chrissy and all of the supporters that came through, they played such a huge role in this book. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it's not me, me, me. And um, that fired me up even more. Like, how dare you silence us, right? Yeah. And that's where I'm like, that, I'm there's gonna, that funnel. <laughs> there's the us, exactly. The us funnel. And, and I, I was like, you know what? I also know that people will stand behind this um, because they backed half the road. They backed our petition for um, what would become La Course by Tour de France. And if men and women equally want to see and hear um, stories of women standing up for change, like we have a platform now to prove that. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening now. So, yeah, it took three years because I had to write stand around a couple different things. One was getting Homestretch off the ground and up and running. And that's my other job. And um, also, I fell on my head in 2016, right. right? So it took me a lot longer to write because I had limited screen time availability for 2017, 18, 19, you know. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and that's why it took a long time. But I also think maybe the stars have aligned, and uh, it's out. So it's been out for a couple months, and um, people, you know, it's a 400-page book. So people are getting through it, and they're like, oh, I'm going to tell my friends about this. And it's starting to spread. So what's cool? Yay, yay. And this is where traditional publishing can, you know, have a slice of how you like them apples pie because (laughs) they said a book would never sell. We've sold 2,000 copies so far. And why that's huge is that in independent publishing, a book is lucky if it'll make 250 sales. And for a traditionally published book, they consider... 
two to 3,000 copies a success, yeah. a victory. So thinking like, well, if that's, and then they consider that in lifetime copies. And I'm like, well, lifetime, if we've made that in one to two months, we're coming for you, you know? <laughs> I, love I love it. And I do think like, I will say, it seems like in the last couple of years, the traditional uh, publishing model and the self-publishing model, like it's, it's no longer like weird to do self-publishing anymore. Like now I think it is completely normal and it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. I agree. I agree. I think there was a stigma at first, like, oh, self-publishing. So you go online and you print out a Word document. Is that self-publishing? You know, oh my gosh. Like the scenes from like the early, like late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that stereotype still exists. And I'm, that's why I love telling people like, I, what's um, kind of a wonderful irony is that uh, the amount of teamwork that went into making Half the Road and Love Course happen is exactly what in went into making stand happen because I had to hire an editor, um, copy editor, a tech guru. Somebody actually knew how to upload and properly format books into tangible objects. Hopefully. Right. Graphic designer. I used, I joked that I, you know, I always thought fairies and elves just sewed books together in the factories. That's not how it happens. Like uh, some pretty incredibly talented people have to make a book, a tangible object. Mm-hmm. So that, that journey alone um, took six months yeah. to to create and to learn how to navigate that um, on independent publishing platforms. Mm-hmm. So and expensive, and, yeah. Yeah, and I'll say you've also you also have it available on sort of all of your wherever books are sold platforms, which is very cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's out there on um, Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. And if you like to shop locally, you can ask your local book seller to will you order stand for me make sure you ask for stand not the stand because that's Stephen King <laughs> they probably have that one in stock they probably do they probably do <laughs> but I love I love that every now and then I'll see his stand and my stand together on Amazon and I'm like eee! He's so hilarious. Awesome. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I have my fingers crossed that someone accidentally ends up with your stand when they meant to get Stephen King and are just like very pleasantly surprised. It's pretty much my fantasy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, my running joke is that they both, um, you know, women's inequality really does belong in the horror genre. So <laughs> it kind of yeah. fits. Yeah. You know? There you go. Uh, okay, so I really quickly do actually want to back up to your concussion situation in 2016. Can you just sort of, I mean, give like the very bird's eye view? I basically just want to underscore the importance of taking concussions very seriously mm-hmm. for our audience because it's something that we get asked about all the time. We have a lot of, we know a lot of people who are like dealing with like long term concussion effects. So can you just kind of, I guess, speak about that whole yeah, and, yeah, it's yeah. so interesting. Um, Technically, what I went through would be deemed a brain injury because on our Richter scale of concussions, there are three levels, you know, one, two, and three. And um, I asked the neurologist, I'm like, well, what am I? And he's like, oh, you're, you know, there's a four and there is no four. So you, you know, you were, you were in the, you're just lucky you're here type of situation. But the, um, uh, the short story is I was at uh, UCI Vuelta Femenil in Mexico and it was a, you know, um, a 64 mile eight lap course, something we'd been around over and over. But of course, in the final sprint, things get a little jumpy and testy. And a woman ahead of me, um, apparently, this is all what's told to me, right, made kind of a dodgy move, like uh, went to attack and then swooped back into the Peloton, like changing her mind. And she um, took out a bunch of us and I got to be the lucky recipient on the bottom of the pile. And my skull cracked twice. Of course, no one knows this at the time of impact, right? But I broke my skull twice and it sent me into seizures and it um, nearly killed me right there on the pavement. Um, What's incredible and amazing and the only thing that I don't yell at UCI about (laughs) is the rule that they have to have a doctor in the caravan of the professional races. And had that rule not been there, I would not be here. So, um, you know, that doctor assessed what was going on and he saw that I wasn't coming out of the seizures. And he also knew that the ambulance was still too far away. And he was able to inject me with Ativan or the equivalent of which will slow seizures. Um, Had he not done that, I would have died right there. 
So it's amazing that all those factors came together. So um, I was in the hospital for the next three weeks, you know, both in in Mexico, then airlifted to Arizona. Um, and I don't have any memory of the crash itself. I have limited memories of the hospital days. You know, I then spent the next two months living on uh, my dad's couch. And uh, what's fascinating about this particular brain injury is I have very, very limited side effects now. Um, fatigue is one. If I think a lot during the day and I really use my brain, I get tired in a different way than just general exhaustion. It's, mm-hmm. it's a deeper level. Um, and sometimes sometimes competing noises or multiple noises in a party situation you know, can um, make my head hurt in a different way. Not that there was much partying going on. I was going to say, 2020 was like really good for you. 2020 was great. Exactly. (laughs) So there, yeah. So, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. But what's so crazy to me is how different brain injuries and concussions are between um, whomever it, it hits. You know, I've had friends who were out on a training ride or, you know, barely even pedaling and maybe just kind of fell over, um, going 10 miles an hour in their driveway, you know, and just tipped over and people who have concussions that where they have lingering side effects for years. Um, and yet they get up in that very same moment. They're like, Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know? So it's so bizarre to me how, yeah. Um, it affects everybody differently and there's no universal answer, but there are more and more platforms out there where people can, uh, get information and help and, um, trust the process of being patient. Um, so that that's a little bit about my brain journey and how you know lucky I am. But I really, truly will never say, "Oh yeah, you know, I have brain injuries, you're going to be fine." There are some people who aren't fine. Yeah, and I I feel for them, and it's important that we acknowledge that there are a lot of people who struggle with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I love that. And actually, on the note of like less screen time for like three years as you got over it. Uh, would you say that's like positively impacted your life? Like yeah. two years downstream, like got mm-hmm. you actually like off of your phone and off of screens for a while? It does. It absolutely does. And I make sure that every year, um, I usually do this in the summer. It just feels like a natural, almost like, um, like a summer vacation. Yeah. Somewhere in July and August, I take six weeks off of social media, which is great. Um, if I am going to be on the screen to do stuff like work on a new project, I don't mind doing that. But even then, it's still about limiting screen time. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's important to set those boundaries, you know, and it's mm-hmm. great. And uh, sometimes people even miss you. And that's nice because then you come back and they're like, welcome back, you know. <laughs> so it's healthy to take breaks. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Last year, I actually got locked out of my Twitter, like just random occurrence. And I was out of it for eight weeks getting it back. I have not really gone back to it like I used to be on it since because it was, yeah. I was just, the first two weeks were awful. But then after that, I was just like, you know what? This is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is great. It is totally great. I, I suggest that for everybody, especially if, like if you're ever tired. That's a great time. You know, or sometimes when we're tired, we habitually will pick up the phone and scroll through, but, um, it'll actually give you more rest if you don't, because you're still engaging your brain, you know, when you're Mm -hmm. scrolling through and doing this, like just, just tune out and step away from it and, uh, you'll love it. (laughs) I love it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, the last question I want to ask you before asking about where everyone can get their copy of stand and where to find you on the internet is what advice would you give a young girl who wants to get into cycling? Because obviously I have to ask this for the shred girls out there. Yay, shred girls. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, um, when you get in the sport, um, don't be afraid to ask questions of the women and girls who are around you, right? And um, say, hey, I'm, I'm new and I don't know how to do this. Can you explain this to me? Right. Like embrace the newness and, and ask, and I'm going to look, we're human beings are, are weird, different animals. You might ask somebody a question and they might not answer nicely or appropriately because humans are weird. Right. But if that happens, please don't let it discourage you from asking because just for as many people who might not have the answer, there are people who do. 
And um, that it's so, so, so important just to remember that there are some amazing role models in this sport and people, you know, cycling especially is going to grow to a better place when um, women are helping other women. And I know they're out there. If you happen to encounter one who's not so helpful, well, it'll be your turn to come back and educate her someday. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. know that there are women out there who do want to help and show you the love of the sport. I had women like that on both sides of that fence, Um, you know, when I was starting. And I I started late. I was 31, you know, and um, there were some amazing, I can tell you, you know, Dotsie Bausch, Amber Pierce, Lauren Hall. Um, these were amazing, incredible athletes during my day. Mm-hmm. And um, they were so helpful. And just know that they're going to be out there in your generation too. So just keep asking and keep keep riding. Follow the love. Yes. So good. Awesome. Okay. So this has been amazing. Uh, before we go here, tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find their copy of Stand. Oh, thank you, Molly. Okay. So I'm on Twitter at Catherine Bertine, Facebook at Catherine Bertine, Instagram. I'm newer to that. Um, that's got the hyphen or the underscore Catherine underscore Bertine. Um, I've got a website, CatherineBertine.com. You can head there to see, you know, to get a direct link to the book, see what I'm working on, or you could just go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or your local bookseller and ask for stand. Excellent. Thank you. That's it. That's that's oh, the title. <laughs> amazing. Catherine, thank you so much for chatting. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week. <laughs>